I'm Ben Horton, and you're listening to Contentious Politics, the mini-series from the Undercurrents podcast. Hello and welcome back to the fourth and final episode of Contentious Politics, our new mini-series with the Middle East and North Africa programme at Chatham House. If you've listened to the other three episodes, I really hope you've found them as interesting as I have. And if you haven't, please do go and listen to those. It doesn't matter. You don't need to listen to um, episodes one to three before this one. But they really are a really interesting package of perspectives on the legacies of the Arab Spring and the future of politics throughout the Arab world. We've drawn on Lebanon. We've drawn on Egypt. And today we're going to be looking at Libya. Dr. Lina Khatib, the director of the Middle East and North Africa program, is joined for this interview by Zara Lengi, a peace activist and expert on gender, conflict resolution and peace building from Libya, and the co-founder of the Libyan Women's Platform for Peace, a socio-political movement focused on peace building, inclusivity and gender equality. Together, they discuss political developments in Libya over the past decade, and the prospect for elections later this year in the country. I hope you enjoy listening. Hello and welcome to this podcast featuring Zahra Lengi from Libya. Zahra is a very well-renowned peace activist in the Middle East and North Africa, And she is the co-founder and head of the Libyan Women's Platform for Peace and an expert on women, peace and security. My name is Lina Khatib and I'm the director of the Middle East and North Africa program at Chatham House. And it's a pleasure to have Zahra with us today to reflect on her experience, particularly in the context of the uprising that happened in Libya in 2011 and the developments in the country are more and more broadly since especially regarding the role of women. So Zahra, really good to have you with us today. Thank you, Lina. I'm happy to be with you as well. Marhaba bikum. Thank you. So let's begin where, um, in a way, our story began with looking at 2011. You were one of uh, many Libyans who were not in Libya at that time, and yet you chose, again, like many others, to uh, get involved in the changes that were happening in Libya at that time. It was was a moment of hope after uh, the uh, removal of Gaddafi from power. So just walk us through what motivated you to come back, what were you doing when it all happened, and what marked kind of for you the moment when you thought, okay, now I I have to be in Libya and work. Well... I was in Egypt witnessing myself uh, what was uh, unfolding of events of the 25th January revolution. So I do come from um, a background of a family uh, who uh, who left the country when I was uh, three years old in the the late 70s. So the political background was there. For some time in uh, the university, I was an activist. However, after graduation, I was primarily involved in the interfaith dialogue, and I was not that much engaged 
in politics, uh, and specifically Libyan politics. However, watching what was um, unfolding in, in Egypt inspired me. And I remember especially uh, the 28th of January, which was called the Day of Rage, and which coincided with my, um, my birthday. That moment, I said, huh, I'm going back to Libya. And we have to do the same thing, call for a day of rage in Libya through the internet. And I wasn't myself an activist, uh, an active person on, um, on social media or at all yet. So I decided that day to be active on Facebook and to start networking, calling for a day of rage in Libya. Actually, I was uh, inspired to see Libyans. You know, we're not talking about Egypt or Tunisia. This is Libya that was under uh, a brutal dictatorship. So, um, And I was uh, inspired by uh, seeing women on the, 20, uh, on the 15th, of revolution, uh, 15th of February, not the 17th of February, as was planned, to come out spontaneously, organically, and to ignite a revolution in Libya. That's how it started. We were closely following events in Libya, networking, trying to get the international support of the protests in Libya. But my focus from early on was uh, not on humanitarian issues, was rather, yes, some people worked on getting the uh, political support, i.e. in getting um, a recognition for uh, the, for example, for the NTC. Uh, for me, I was, I was really concerned about the day after the fall of Gaddafi. I was concerned uh, knowing the legacy of Gaddafi and that it will be uh, a heavy uh, legacy that, that of uh, destruction not only of the institutions but also of the moral fabric uh, of the Libyan society. What will happen the next day Gaddafi's regime uh, will fall? So the, uh, I started working even before uh, the fall of Gaddafi's regime uh, on networking with civil society activists uh, from the region, whether Tunisia, Egypt, uh, with uh, Libyan youth. We started inviting Libyan youth to, to get the experience from, uh, hands-on experience from Egyptian revolutionaries on issues related to um, civic uh, journalism on uh, documenting human rights, on women's rights. So that's how I built a network with uh, youth activists in Libya. And I'm proud they are the ones now, when I look uh, after 11 years, they are the leading activists in the scene today, whether uh, the youth activist or uh, the women's rights activist. And that's how we later on convened with Karama uh, organization, which is a, a regional and an international organization, the first meeting that kicked off Libyan Women's Platform for Peace. Uh, so that was the first meeting ever in the history of Libyan women uh, to, uh, to, to have a meeting uh, between Libyan women in diaspora 
diaspora, Libyan women from with different walks of life, with different backgrounds, from the east, from the south, from the the west, from uh, different uh, diverse cultural, ethnic background, and to come together to say uh, Libyan women must have uh, an important role after the revolution to make sure that we have an inclusive democratic transition and um, uh, a gender-sensitive transitional justice process. In Libya after the fall of Gaddafi. So that was even before Gaddafi was killed. That's all very rich and very, very important to pay attention to, especially when it comes to the role of women, because you're saying that before this uh, initiative happened, there was not an initiative that brought together Libyan women uh, and as a, as a kind of political platform. And then you mentioned the NTC, the National Transitional Council. How much representation was there for women after all this effort that you made in formal organizations, political organizations in Libya after the removal of Gaddafi? The transitional justice, the NTC, had only two women. And one of these two women uh, resigned, who was Selwa Bugardis, and she herself was one of the co-founders of the Libyan Women's Platform for Peace. So that's why the women who actually attended that meeting and who kicked off the Libyan Women's Platform for Peace, and there were 35 women, they were concerned even before the fall of a Gaddafi regime that they were concerned that uh, concerned by the exclusionary patriarchal practices Because, as I said, uh, the Libyan women in Benghazi, on the 15th of their revolution, they are the ones who started the whole revolution. Uh, We were all closely following what's happening in Libya. People were dreadful to come out on the 17th as planned, as the, the, the day of rage. But it was the women who came out and said, rise up, rise up, Benghazi. So it's the women who actually uh, have, with their call that night, shattered all the fears. Yet, and this is what I always call the gender paradox of uh, the uprisings in the Arab region, not only of Libya, but Libya in particular. Uh, Women were at the forefront of these demonstrations as protesters, medical workers, aid providers, They were organizing behind the scenes and in diaspora calling for political change and an inclusive transition to democracy. However, even during that period of the the NTC, there was systematic exclusion of women from the public uh, sphere. Women uh, started to feel the intense depoliticization, the silencing at uh, crucial moments. We in the political transformation uh, process. And we all remember the celebration of liberation and the words of uh, Mustafa Abdeljilil when he said, uh, this is a new era. We are now uh, ruled by uh, Islamic Sharia. And that means that for all our men, especially the freedom fighters, the revolutionaries, you have the right to polygamy now. So that was the first slap on um, our uh, faces as women. 
here uh, it's a catalyst moment of this uh, gender paradox. So um, women are the politically empowered agents of the revolution and change. We've seen women coming out in public spheres, leading these initiatives, efforts. On the other hand, they are the victims of a new kind of political violence and exclusion. It started with the exclusion, but then it transformed even to a worse phase, which is a phase of systematic political violence. And from early on, um, the issue, uh, we started as a movement. Yes, we were aware of this exclusion, but I think uh, that we did not took the right uh, approach early on. We immediately started to think about the elections, about the quota, about the zipper list, which we fought for fighting for a, a more inclusive electoral law to have a fair, meaningful representation at the first legislative body elected uh, in 52 years. And um, thanks to the efforts of all women's rights organizations uh, and uh, gender-sensitive legal experts who were part of this uh, initiative of the uh, electoral law, uh, we managed to have the zipper list and then to get a presentation of 16.5 in the first elected ever legislative body in 52 years. It was a success story, but then I realized that it was not the solution because it was it was not meaningful. Because the issue is there were the the anarchy of arms. Uh, what to do with the uh, the whole legacy of uh, the flooding of arms, the militias. So it was meaningless, actually, to have women represented at the, the first Congress when they were threatened, along with other uh, male colleagues, uh, members of the Congress, by militia-affiliated members and militia uh, in general. So uh, for me, it was the issue that moment. It made me rethink the whole idea of women's empowerment. And I started to think that there, there should have been a more call for an inclusive, participatory, uh, gender-equitable uh, institutional reform. There should, be, uh, should, there should have been more calls for demilitarization and peace-building. There should have been uh, more calls for uh, inclusive uh, state-building. So uh, the issue was not the numerical representation as much as the real political and social transformation that Libya needed at that time. And it's, it's from that moment with the election of the GNC and seeing that the representation of women was not meaningful because of the militarization in the country and the flooding of arms and the issue of militias and all, all of those issues. And with what we've seen, especially for me, with my background, it, uh, it was uh, heartbreaking to witness that uh, after the revolution, there will be a desecration of Sufi tombs, there uh, will be um, attack on uh, uh, demolition of um, uh, Sufi shrines, 
and ancient mosques, and in, uh, even they were uh, condoned by the highest religious uh, authority back then and by certain political Islamist uh, groups. So for me, uh, that, mo- that was uh, a watershed moment for me, uh, and I felt that it's, this is not what we need. We need a social political uh, um, transformation in the country. We need to address the root causes. We need another kind of a, a revolution. So it's not only about the, the numerical representation of women, and uh, it, uh, the whole idea we wanted to have, like, uh, yes, there, uh, always with revolutions, there are challenges, there are uh, risks, uh, but there are also opportunities. So I felt that there is um, an opportunity to have maybe a paradigm shift in the women's empowerment approach, not to be fixated on only women's rights issues and leave everything else, because everything is intersected and interrelated and interdependent. So what we needed was, as women activists in our movement, a shift of paradigm from the women's empowerment to a more inclusive, participatory, integrated one of political and normative frameworks, making sure that we have an inclusive, participatory, gender-equitable institutional reform and state building is more important than anything else to safeguard women's public participation. So um, it was uh, for us an important uh, moment where we need to move from calling only for numerical representation in the already existing political systems to shaping a new discourse on politics of inclusion with new values of governance. So that's how we started this movement and we were able and successful to engage a lot of youth because we made our discourse was more inclusive and made sense to them. We had a common and shared uh, agenda. But that in itself took us to another phase where it threatened the life of our members. And it's then that Selwa's Bogadis uh, uh, life was at risk because she herself moved to calling for a national dialogue, an inclusive national dialogue. She was against the political isolation law. We were calling for uh, demobilization and uh, of militias, of uh, disarmament. At the same time, we were calling for... Uh, uh, security sector r- r- uh, reform with a human rights and gender sensitive approach. So we had enemies from different sides. So it was not an easy year, uh, 2013 and 2014, especially 2014 with the assassinations and the attack and the haunting of civil society activists like Selwa, like Farih al who were calling for peaceful transfer of power, like uh, also Tawfiq bin Saud, the youngest in the youth movement, Madani movement, calling for um, DDR and SSR and uh, calling for combating and confronting violent extremism. This is where uh, we had uh, the phase of those who were exiled being re-exiled again. So it's after the assassination of Selwa Bugadiz, 
and Fariha that I left the country again and I never came back to that moment. Yeah, so here we're talking really two years. All the stories that you just narrated mainly happened after the General uh, National Congress was elected, which was uh, July 2012, until the assassination of Salwa, who, as you said, was the co-founder with you of the Libyan Women's Platform for Peace in 2014. So two years that were monumental, full of challenges. And yeah, you know, they were the years that brought back members of the Libyan diaspora back to Libya. But as a result, as you said, it became untenable for many of you to still be there inside Libya. So we're talking 2014 until today. It's, you know, a significant period of time. And within that time, although you've been abroad, you have not stopped working. So I'd be very interested to hear from you after 2014, realizing that the situation on the ground was full of challenges and yet the cause is, is, is still there to be pursued. You were working abroad. Uh, you were part of the UN-led uh, peace process for Libya. So maybe can you just uh, reflect on how uh, uh, that kind of feeds into the bigger story of um, political transformation in Libya? What has your role been in the UN-led peace process, reflecting on all those lessons that you just talked to us about regarding inclusion, regarding security sector reform, uh, demobilization, disarmament and reintegration of uh, militia members, etc.? So actually, the first time I was invited to the UN-led uh, political dialogue, it was actually uh, a lot of people uh, don't uh, recall that, but it was the first political dialogue was in late uh, 2013. And it failed. Um, during that time, it was uh, led by the former special envoy, Tarek Mitri. That political dialogue, actually, it was a political dialogue on the issue of um, the relationship of the executive authority, the government, which was led by Sayyid Ali Zaydan, and uh, the legislative authority. And um, according at that time, before having the amendment of the constitutional declaration, the GNC was had assumed uh, legislative and sovereign or, let's say, executive authorities. So there was no clear separation of powers in the uh, constitutional declaration. And part of our uh, campaigns and activism uh, after the revolution in 2012 and 2013 and 2014 was basically against Article 30, uh, which, which outlines the roadmap for uh, the political transition in the constitutional declaration. So from day one, we were aware of the problematics of the constitutional declaration and specifically Article 30 in outlining the outline of the political transition. And there will be issues uh, problematic related to the peaceful transfer of power. And so the first uh, UN-led uh, political dialogue was around this issue because th there was debate, uh, especially with the failure of the GNC, the first uh, elected uh, legislative body uh, in 52 years, uh, 
failed miserably in addressing the serious problems, especially uh, due to the the anarchy of uh, arms. Uh, there was an attack and assassination against um, uh, the uh, army and police officers. There was not a serious attempt to build and reform the security sector. And there was this tension between these, uh, the executive, the government, and the political, um, the, the legislative body, the GNC. At the same time, there were other issues. There was uh, this issue of the constitutional process, uh, which was um, uh, the, the law of the constitutional um, assembly was exclusionary. It only had a, a quota of 10%. Um, so there were only uh, six women in this uh, in the CDA, the Constitutional As- um, uh, Drafting Assembly. The Amazir Tuareg Tabu uh, boycotted the the elections of the CDA. I myself uh, worked uh, boycotted it. A lot of women were attacked. Who um, the candidates who ran for the elections? So the, the, the elections of the CDA happened at a moment where security was deteriorating further and further and further. And so when we have that political dialogue, it's the same, and I'm mentioning this because a lot of people forget about this. It's the same as we are facing today. On what basis are we going to have the elections? Is it based on the constitution or are we going to still be uh, in a transitional phase? Uh, Because According to Article 30 in the Constitutional Declaration, it tied both the elections with the constitutional process. And because of all the issues related to the CDA, there was a change several times, several changes at that moment, maybe six amendments to Article 30. It was postponed. And so on the 7th of February 2014, it was supposed to be the deadline or the the mandate of GNC was supposed to terminate on that date. But we only had elections on the 14th of February 2014. So again, there was this movement, no to the status quo institutions, which is the GNC. So the dialogue was was supposed to draft a roadmap. I myself and Selwa Bugardis were part of this dialogue and we were threatened at that dialogue. And we were closely working with grassroots movements on to have an alternative roadmap. And so I personally, uh, from early on, was in favor of reinstating Constitution 1951. And let me tell you why, because... During that time, we had Jadran as well, and we had the Federalist Separatist Movement. Uh, uh, the, there were uh, a Federalist Movement and there was a, a Separatist Movement. And so issues related to equality of distribution of wealth uh, was not on the table of uh, negotiations of the UN. Issues related to uh, uh, cultural rights, the rights of Amazir, were not part of the agenda of the EU, uh, the peace process. Uh, always the agenda is about the power sharing paradigm. 
And so issues related to uh, distribution of wealth or economic and social rights, uh, issues related to cultural rights, which I personally think are part um, of the root causes of the, the conflict in Libya, were never sufficiently or were never addressed at all. It's always have been the power sharing dynamics between the political elite. So when that failed, we had to go to the elections and we all know um, what happened. Um, uh, We did not have a peaceful transfer of power. We had the Karama movement was launched, uh, led by Haftar in the East, which uh, not only targeted those affiliated with with Al-Qaeda or ISIS, but it also targeted other uh, militias as well. It has affected uh, negatively the social uh, cohesion, uh, particularly in Benghazi and in uh, Serenaika in general. Then we had the, uh, the Fajr uh, operation also uh, that has affected negatively uh, the social cohesion in, uh, in the West. That led to the UN leading another political process, as we all know, this Khairat. This Khairat, at the core of it, was a power-sharing model, and it's power-sharing between political elite, between the GNC, who are, again, they have been uh, transformed and brought back to life through this Khairat agreement, uh, the state council, and the parliament. So that power-sharing uh, agreement, it's always the case of the exe- uh, uh, establishing new government. The, the focus is always the executive authority. So on that, they created, uh, the UN um, created a toothless, weak, centralized government in the West, headed by Sarraj, and this whole council of nine figures were not able to deliver anything to people, change the lives of the quality of Libyans on the ground, address the issue of security uh, concerns, uh, the issue of uh, the, the economic grievances. So um, it's always has been, um, uh, unfortunately, the UN proposing a political uh, solution versus a military solution and never ad- addressing the multidimensional aspect of the conflict and hence the need to have a hybrid multidimensional approach. So the focus is only on political and by that creating each time an executive uh, body that is still centralized, that uh, is weak, that is toothless, that lacks legitimacy, that lacks the capability and authority to rule in the entire country. So that was the Sakhairat. Again, the Sakhairat uh, reached the GNA mandate was supposed to end in 20, uh, December 2017. At that time, the constitutional uh, process was not over yet. It was only uh, done uh, uh, in 2018. So 
again, how are we going to have the elections? How are we going to, uh, up to this moment, we're having the same discussions, uh, the referendum first or the elections first? Are we heading to another transitional phase? It's roundabouts. So never solving the real uh, root causes of the conflict, the economic grievances, for example, always uh, establishing a new executive authority. And when we're even discussing a constitutional basis, we're only discussing the relationship of the legislative to the executive. Nothing beyond that. Nothing related to the country's uh, dire need of a decentralized system of governance. Nothing in making sure that we need a new socioeconomic model that would empower uh, social forces and dismantle the rentier state. And that could have been done easily if we focused on establishing a rights-based national charter. And, And nothing to address even the, the, the level of lawlessness that the country uh, is facing and the, the, the culture of impunity, that's another story in itself. So uh, always all these UN-led um, peace processes do not address the real issues at stake. I just mm. wanted to reflect on all that as we conclude our uh, podcast by asking Perhaps the UN-led peace process is not the avenue for addressing all these issues. Are there other avenues that you have identified or created outside of the UN-led peace process that are working to at least try to resolve some of these issues? Has there been civil society mobilization, for example? Yes, I thank you for this question because I wanted to move the to the final phase, which is the realization on my part personally of the failure of the UN to establish sustainable peace. And after especially the last process, which I participated in the LPDF, and I've seen how corruption itself was normalized in that process and how that process lacked the transparency, uh, the values of accountability, rule of law, due process, which was supposed to be upheld by a body that enshrines supposedly international law. So ever since that, I, I personally think it is time to terminate and to think of an exit strategy for the UN mission in Libya. There could be other roles for the UN in Libya, but not a political mission in Libya. That has become more of a burden and part of the problem in Libya's political transformation. That's why I do believe now that what we need is more of a bottom-up plan for Libya, a bottom-up plan that we would build new local and national frameworks that stabilize the country. A bottom-up plan that would empower, would, would be focused on a new governance model, restructuring and decentralizing the state 
to build a social cohesion, a bottom-up plan that, as I was saying earlier, that would introduce a new socioeconomic model, empowering social, local forces, dismantling the legacy of a rentier state. And that can only happen through a bottom-up rights-based national charter or covenant. And that needs to be really led and owned by Libyans themselves. The only way forward for Libya before even instating, for for me, part of the solution is in reinstating Libya's only constitution that it had, which is 1951. But before that, we need to establish a whole inclusive participatory bottom-up process led and owned by Libyan to establish a rights-based national charter. That happens in Libya back in 1946, like al-Mithaq al-Harabi, before the establishment of the state. I think we are in a moment that we need to focus on the nation-building process to establish a horizontal social covenant or charter before we establish and agree on our constitution, which is a vertical social contract between the the state and the citizens. We need to establish that on the horizontal level first. So that's what Libya needs at the moment, and it needs to be led and owned by Libyans themselves. And at the core of that charter, Libyans need to address the economic grievances. Absolutely. And I think what you've just said applies not just to Libya, but to a lot of countries across the Middle East and North Africa, where a lot of perhaps international attention has been on formal political processes to do with institutions like parliament and government, but not a lot of attention is being given to the bottom-up approach that you're talking about, the horizontal approach, and the fact that political transformation is not just about political elites coming up with power-sharing agreements. And also to go back to the issue of women empowerment that you mentioned, very importantly, that it's not just about making sure that there are numbers of women represented. It's actually about integrating the role of the citizen at large in an inclusive process. So thank you so much, Zahra, for a very thorough, comprehensive, frank assessment of the situation in Libya that I hope will also inform listeners uh, about the challenges facing political transformation and democratization in the region as a whole. So thank you again for being with us today. Thank you, Lina. Thank you. Well, that's it for this episode of Contentious Politics. Thank you very much for joining us. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you're generally enjoying the podcast, please do like us, share us on social media, subscribe in whichever podcast app you're using to listen to this and leave us a review because it makes it far easier for other people to find us. If you'd like to find out more about the work of the Middle East and North Africa program, the best way to do that is to check out the Chatham House website, www.chathamhouse.org, 
or to follow them on Twitter at ch underscore menap. Thanks for joining us.